Enga hau e whā o te motu, nau piki mai nau kake mai ki tēne o ngā wahanga e kia nei ko The Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, or NASA, held their three-day conference at the University of Waikato. The conference provides a space where academics discuss their dissertations and their research from an Indigenous perspective. Over the next few weeks, we'll feature coverage from four sessions that featured in the conference. Tonight, Professor Mary Tutti Baker of Brown University, Rhode Island, discusses Kipuka Aloha Aina, spaces of Kanakamali resurgence. At KKV, caring for community means providing, in addition to medical, dental, and behavioral health, It also means promoting health by sharing food and laughter, celebrating elders and children, dancing, planting, and remembering how to be a community. From RMIT University in Melbourne, Tina Grandinetti discusses Aloha Aina in the face of dispossession. Aloha Aina to mean a love and respect of the land, similar to the practice of kaitiakitanga or guardianship. This is Pu'ohonua o Waianae, the refuge of Waianae, a self-organized encampment home to roughly 200 people currently experiencing houselessness. Many of them are working families with children, many of them are kupuna, and while the community is multi-ethnic, a majority of residents are kanako o'ihi, houseless in their own home. E aku nui, e aku rahi. No mai haramai ki te kaupapa nei. This is Tiahika on RNZ. Ko Justine Murray, aho. Professor Mary Tuti Baker is Kanaka Māori, the Indigenous Peoples of Hawaii, based at Brown University, Rhode Island. She is a Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Political Science. From a panel discussion at the recent NASA conference, her topic looks at cultivating kipuka aloha aina, ideologies and implications for other Indigenous cultures. Mahalo to all the organizers of this um, this hui for um, bringing us all together to learn about how, as Oivi, as in Kanaka Maoli, as Indigenous peoples of um, the earth, we can share and cultivate our our knowledge, our ancestral knowledge, our knowledges of the Aina. Here, Professor Baker provides a definition of kipuka aloha aina. We take the concept from the um, definition from Pukui and Albert, who define kipuka as a variation or a change of form. And it's especially a clear place or oasis within a lava bed where there may be vegetation. And for us, kipuka aloha aina are um, places where resurgence um, is held in a creative tension between ku'e, that's resistance, opposition, and ku'kulu, which is the building of lahui, the building and um, recreating of our own space. But my talk today is going to focus on the way Kipuka Aloha Aina expand and move and create resilience 
And in fact, um, my, my dissertation was about what I call indigenous ideologies and the role they play in strengthening those bonds within and between Kipuka Aloha Aina. I think I started from a place of, of um, learning sort of the Haole canon, the Western canon of political resistance. From there, I, I thought, well, you know, this doesn't quite work. How do we make it work for us as Kanaka? The work, the, these, this work that I'm, I'm engaged in comes out of being a part of Ho'ulu Aina, which is a kipuka on the edge of urban Honolulu, the practicing Maoli-placed ethics of care in, um, on a 100-acre garden and forest complex that's a part of Kokua Kalihi Valley Comprehensive Family Services, or KKV. The KKV is an organization that was built by and for working-class community in Kalihi Valley. And it's, um, it's a health center, but it's much more than a health center. At KKV, caring for community means providing, in addition to medical, dental, and behavioral health, it also means promoting health by sharing food and laughter, celebrating elders and children, dancing, planting, and remembering how to be a community. You know, they, they're serving a population that's primarily Kanaka Maoli and immigrants from other Pacific islands. And so a relationship to the Aina is a really important part of health for most of the people that go through the doors of that health clinic. So 10 years ago, KKV signed a lease with the state for a parcel of land that had been wasted by a commercial nursery and then abandoned. KKV hired Kanaka Maoli to reclaim the land and Ho'unu Aina was born. And it, it now provides a number of programs that focus on healing the land and the people. They use the knowledge and values embedded in place and, um, you know, this is ancestral knowledge and knowledge that comes out of the Aina to provide health and well-being services for Kalihi residents. The Kanaka Maoli at Ho'ulu Aina are engaged in an ongoing experiment to develop practices that counter the toxicity and trauma of settler colonial states and build in the, in the present resilient futures for Aina and Kanaka. It's a community that includes the land, the Kanaka Maoli, the first people of this land, immigrants, and settlers alike. Uh, my work also builds on Audrey Lord's observation that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. That bring, brings me to the question, what tools do we use? Professor Mary Tutti Baker graduated with her PhD in political science from the University of Manoa at Hawaii. Her research looked at the relationship between Kanaka Oiwi, or Native Hawaiian values, and the practice and politics of decolonization. I started developing indigenous ideologies as a way to understand, um, as, a, as another tool in that toolbox. 
Now, I understand ideologies in general as narratives, images, and symbols that represent the collective desires, beliefs, and ethics of a community, of a group of people. Ideologies organize these communities into peoples and nations. And states also come out of that um, formation, and they are, uh, oftentimes they always use ideology to discipline the communities into hierarchies of domination. Right? Indigenous ideologies emerge out of knowledge systems, ancestral values, place-based practices, the mo'olelo, that unite us as a people. Indigenous ideologies, I argue, are radically different from the array of ideological formations that structure social relations in capitalist societies. And I further argue that indigenous ideologies provide a means to build indigenous futures that do not depend on governance structures of the settler state. We'll take a, a little journey to another land, another toolbox. <laughs> French Marxist philosopher Louis Althusser writes that in capitalist societies, the worker needs more than wages to keep them showing up to work. Althusser observed that narratives, images, symbols have emerged in capitalist societies that rationalize the continued domination by the ruling class. Organizations and institutions like churches, schools, other community groups function as ideological state apparatuses that ensure a reproduction of submission to the ruling ideology for the workers and a reproduction of the ability to manipulate the ruling ideology correctly by the agents of exploitation and re repression. And this concept is really um, an elaboration or very similar to Gramsci's concept of hegemony for all of those who are students of political theory, political history. Alternatively, indigenous ideologies like Aloha Aina, that's love for the land, work to strengthen ind indigenous resurgence. Emerging out of a worldview that embodies kinship relationship with land, plants, animals, clouds, rain, and the multitude of geological and meteorological existence of place, indigenous ideologies express collective desires, beliefs, and ethics, including principles of respect and reciprocal responsibility between Aina, individual, and community in relationship that have developed across generations of being of and on the land. Therefore, these thinkings, these um, ideologies cannot be reduced to an abstract that set of theoretical principles designed to contain all situations in all places in all times, which is really if you think about it, the colonial project, the project of empire is to erase all of our individual specific, place-based specific ideologies and replace it with their ideology of domination. Aloha Aina is an ideology that organizes Kanaku Maoli social, political, and economic life functioning as an ideological formation that calls people into a relationship to Aina. And these relationships become political commitments 
to counter the move by the settler state, state to discipline Kanakamauli into capitalist social relationships. In Aloha Betrayed, Noi Noi Silva traces the roots of Aloha Aina to ideology, as ideology, to native opposition in the 19th century. Uh, one example is Joseph Navahi, who writes in the newspaper, um, Alaila o ke aloha i makuahini ko aina ko wahi i hanawi ai oya kamea e lohi ai na la na makahiki o ke Thus, love for your mother, the land, the place where you were born, that is what will make the days and years of your life long. Aloha Aina then also uh, reemerges the land struggles of the 1970s. And um, one of our great um, contemporary scholars, Honanike Trask, writes about, um, about the struggle at Kalama Valley. And she says, in the beginning of the decade, the rallying cry was land for local people, not tourists. By 1976, the time of Kalama Valley, the language of protest had changed from English to Hawaiian with emphasis on the native relationships to land. The cultural value of aloha aina, love of the land, was to characterize the demands of protesters into the 1980s. So the Hawaiian political movement for self-determination and sovereignty has matured and the ensuing decades of aloha aina is now a discourse and ideology of practices that organizes a diverse Kanaka Maoli community to political action. Tēnā koe, Professor Mary Tutibaker, Kanaka Māori, Brown University, recorded at NASA, the Native American Indigenous Scholars Association Conference, hosted by the University of Waikato. Tina Grandinetti is a writer and academic, currently based at RMIT University, Melbourne in Australia, but she calls Hawaii home. Her research looks at kipuka aloha aina in the face of urban dispossession. Here, Grandinetti talks about her field research into houselessness and the creation of Pōuhunua or Waianai, a makeshift village or tent city with 200 residents. Grandinetti argues that neoliberalism led to the dispossession of kanaka oiwi, native Hawaiians or people of the land, but that pu o honua or waianai as a living space is an example of self-determination and transformation. I want to mahalo the Waikato Tainui people of this land um, and pay my respects also to the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in um, Australia on whose lands I now work on and of course to Kanaka Oibi whose lands I was raised on and call home as a Uchinanju um, in occupied Hawaii. So today I want to talk about how Kipuka Aloha Aina emerged in the ruins of neoliberal capitalism um, in urban spaces of organized abandonment. This, this paper builds on the work of Laurel May Singh and Kalani Opua Young, and I'm super grateful for the relationship that I've built with them, and also emerges from my fieldwork in two very different urban spaces um, on Oahu, one is a luxury redevelopment district called Kaka'ako. I'm sure a lot of you guys know it. 
And the other is a place called Pu'uhonua Owayanai, which I'm going to focus on today. On a patch of state-owned land next to the Waianae Boat Harbor, a dirt path winds its way past shelters made up of tents, blue tarps, and wood pallets. This is Pu'uhonua Owayanai, the refuge of Waianae, a self-organized encampment home to roughly 200 people currently experiencing houselessness. Many of them are working families with children, many of them are kupuna, and while the community is multi-ethnic, a majority of residents are Konako Ibi, houseless in their own homeland. Tent cities like this are actually on the rise all around the world, and particularly in the U.S., where neoliberal urban policy has decimated public housing, rolled back social welfare programs, and intensified speculation in property markets. So neoliberalism is kind of like... It takes capitalism even a step further in some ways, um, not only absolving the state of responsibility to care for its people um, and leaving that to the market, but also um, kind of this ideology that the state should actually pave the way for capitalism, for capital to move freely um, and to let the market do its thing sort of at the cost of everything else. So there's a wealth of literature on the ways that neoliberalism has exacerbated housing deprivation. Um, but to stop at this critique is, is carrying out what McElroy and Worth call deracinated dispossessions. So those are accounts of displacement that are uprooted from grounded histories of racial and settler colonial violence. Instead, to understand Pu'uhunua Owai'anai, we need to recognize that urbanization in Hawaii has functioned as settler colonialism in action dispossessing Kanaka and working to further settler claims to land and more so the very meanings that we associate with land. So the neoliberal housing crisis, we always talk about the affordable housing crisis, um, is part and parcel of intersecting but incommensurable histories of capitalist and settler colonial dispossession. It's literally produced the conditions of inequality that lead to encampments like this one. But this place is much more than a product of dispossession, although it is that as well. As Kanaka scholar and former Pu'uhunua resident Dr. Kalani Opua Young argues in her rich autoethnographic dissertation, Pu'uhunua Owai'anai was born out of dispossession and abandonment and transformed into a space of abundance. It's a kipuka that turns the ruins of capitalist urban development into the seeds of indigenous resurgence through the everyday practice of aloha'aina. To understand the village, uh, we need to understand the broader context of housing injustice in Hawaii. I feel like so many of us here already know, but like many places in the world, Hawaii is experiencing two seemingly contradictory phenomena. The first is a luxury building boom in the urban core um, and a severe affordable housing crisis. So in places like Kaka'ako, cranes pull tower after tower of shiny blue glass into the sky, some with penthouses selling at up to $35 million. But many of these condos are like literally empty shells for speculative investment. At nighttime, their windows are dark and they sit vacant even as they generate more and more wealth for their absentee landowners. At the same time, 75% of housing demand comes from low-income households. Nearly one-third of renters spend half of their income on shelter alone, probably a bunch of people in this room, um, and housing deprivation continues to rise. Housing deprivation makes literal room for those speculative spaces of neoliberalism. 
but it's framed as individualized failure and met with policies like sit bans, uh, sit lie bans, and mass sweeps that criminalize pro- poverty. The production of housing deprivation re-entrenches settler colonial inequities and means that Kanako OEB are disproportionately represented in the houseless community. This is settler colonial violence that literally results in premature death. Between 2014 and 2018, 373 people died on the streets of Honolulu. The average age of death was 53 years old, about 30 years shorter than Hawaii's average life expectancy. It's in this context that Puuhonoa Owai'anae was formed. Some residents have been living at the Waianae Boat Harbor for 20 years, but the community as we know it came into being around around 2012 when the city bulldozed a large encampment at Keaau Beach Park down the road, sending hundreds of people searching for shelter. Many of them flooded the quiet community at the Boat Harbor and quickly complaints began to mount. That's when Auntie Twinkle Borge stepped up to advocate for herself and the other residents at the neighborhood board meeting. The harbor master gave her 60 days to get things under control or else be evicted, and those 60 days turned into years of on-the-ground on organizing. Today, there are simple ground rules in place. No stealing, no, no, no noise on school nights, eight hours of community service per month. Um, there's a mala for planting food, a library for kids, and non-market economic practices like a donation tent and practices of mutual care among residents. The encampment um, is divided into blocks and each block's assigned a captain, usually a woman, usually a Kanaka woman. Um, And Young characterizes this governance structure as, quote, a cultural economy that weaves gender, history, and nation into a form of rebellion against indigenous dispossession and capitalist social relations. Rather than homeless or even houseless, Young frames this experience as home-free, honoring the autonomy of living in ways that refuse settler colonial geographies, and also honoring the fact that for a lot of Pu'ohonua residents, um, it's not only a short-term shelter, but a lot of people have made it their permanent home. They proudly call it a village, and they often draw connections to um, the traditional kauhale system. When residents began welcoming housed people into the village to see it face-to-face, these radiating responsibilities then um, extended beyond the borders of the village and disrupted settler discourses that positioned houseless folks as the constitutive outside of society. People stepped up to help with trash collection, water, supplies, mentoring for children, and these relationships really reminded folks that Kanaka living home free at Pu'uhonua, Owai, and I are not freeloading, but practicing refusal and self-determination in, uh, that's rooted in indigenous cultural practice and also political claims. So this speaks to the state's deeply ambivalent relationship to Pu'uhonua, Owai, and I. On the one hand, land in Hawaii is big bucks, and to live freely on it is an affront to the centrality of the real estate market and to the construction of us as consumers, um, as well as to the state's claims to legitimacy. Um, On the other hand, as the state and city continued to sweep more visible houses encampments, it completely counted on the labor of this community to absorb and provide for the people um, who were displaced by their policies. But as the community grew stronger and more autonomous and much more explicit in its claims to belonging and home on the state-owned land, officials became more adamant that this wasn't an acceptable solution to houselessness. 
So they employed a variety of tactics um, to counter this disruption. So first, they started to um, uh, try to co-opt some of, like, they offered anti-twinkle a, a job with the state twice. Um, one of them included an apartment away from YNI, and she refused, saying the second, she said, quote, I knew the second they get me out, the whole village is out. Um, also, like, recognizing them and some other houses, folks from other communities, while at the same time continuing to um, do sweeps. Um, and then finally, in March 2011, uh, 2018, at an unscheduled appearance at a neighborhood board meeting, state officials announced plans to sweep the village in three months' time. Um, and they cited plans to build a marine science education center on the property, which they have not mentioned since. Um, so the threat of eviction meant that Pu'uhunua'owai and I had to move to stay connected. Um, but allies from the house communities were able to pressure Governor David Ige to meet with Auntie Twinkle, and she presented a plan to move the village to um, a permanent location of their own. Today, Pu'uhunua'owai and I and a volunteer group called Hui Aloha are fundraising to either purchase property or to secure a lease on state land. And recently, the legislature committed to two, uh, committed two million dollars to provide support to this new incarnation of the village as a houseless, homeless services zone. Um, another important thing to note is that Hui Aloha and Pu'uhunua Owai and I have been intentional about um, radiating responsibilities to other houses communities in Kaka'ako and Waimanalo. They bring food and guidance on how to build relational accountability between people who've been isolated and alienated from each other through repressive tactics like sweeps and police harassment. And as those communities began to organize and come together, the state then began to consider extending similar support to them by creating multiple kauhale zones or safe zones um, for those it considers the hardest to house. And here I want to quote at length from Leanne Simpson, who writes, Fixing social ills without addressing the politics of land and body dispossession serves only to reinforce settler colonialism, because it doesn't stop the system that causes the harm in the first place, while also creating the opportunity for neoliberalism to benevolently provide just enough ill-conceived programming and funding to keep us in a constant state of crisis, which inevitably they market as our fault. Where the state is very quick to define the terms of this houselessness crisis, crisis as a gap in the provision of care, um, we have to push the question, why are Kanako OEB and working class folks in Hawaii becoming houseless in the first place? And who is benefiting from their displacement and exploitation? So the relocation to a permanent site is, fits really neatly into the idea of progress and possessive individualism, but they completely miss the real sense of loss that's going to happen when this village moves. So when I asked Auntie Twinkle how she's going to feel she uh, on the day that she leaves this aina that she's lived on for years, she said, it's going to break my heart, even thinking about it. I actually found myself here when I first came here. <laughs> I know. This is home, you know? The hardest part is when I got to say goodbye, for real. I know that will take one big toll on me, and I believe a lot of people here. Um, and the way we think about urban Aina doesn't leave any room for that, um, but it's, it's there. Um, so we got to remember that this property tenure system is a violent tool, and we have to think about new ways to challenge that. So personally, I'm trying to think about 
learn more about counter strategies like rent control and urban community land trusts that kind of push at those boundaries of private property um, and how that might articulate with um, decolonial movements. Tēnā koe, Tina Grandinetti, writer and academic based at RMIT University, Melbourne in Australia. That was highlights of her discussion, Aloha Aina in the Face of Urban Dispossession, recorded at the recent NASA conference hosted by the University of Waikato. Kia Professor Mary Titi Baker, who we heard earlier in the show. Next week, a discussion about Indigenous and Western healing practices working side by side. That's coming up from Dr. Michael Spencer. For information about tonight's show and, of course, previous shows, head to rnz.co.nz forward slash tiahika. You can subscribe to the podcast as well. Search RNZ Tiahika. Ko te manako ia kia pai tā koutou wiki. Hei kona mai.